Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and I want to apologize right off the bat for the state of my voice. I'm uh, just fighting a cold. I promise I'm COVID negative, but uh, um, yes, I'm not at, the, not at the top of my vocal game, so hopefully you can tolerate that as uh, we dive into God's Word together. We're in a series on the kingdom of God and uh, going to continue to expand on what Jesus meant when He taught about this. And as I was preparing uh, for this, and the topic in particular that we're talking about today, I just thought I would pick myself up a little bit by looking at statistics on poverty, food insecurity, drinking water advisories, homelessness, addictions, toxic drug deaths, sexual violence, mental health, generational trauma, and injustice in the courts. Um, it took me maybe 20 minutes, and um, it was pretty heavy-duty stuff, right? You know, it doesn't take long to Google these things, and you realize it's very, very sobering. And it, the needs in our culture, just even in our province, are so sobering, so great. And I think there's a reason why the Bible uses that metaphor of a domain of darkness that is at work in our world, undermining justice and compassion and dignity. Well, when Jesus came into a world under the same kind of darkness, <coughs> excuse me, he started with this message, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is good news for the domain, for the people under the domain of darkness. And so we want to know what that kingdom of God is, and that's why we're in this series. Dr. Tim Mackey simply says that the kingdom of God is God taking back His world. God taking back His world. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see Him going in all these dark places with the message of the kingdom of God. He's bringing hope to people who are despairing. He's healing brokenness. He's this light everywhere He goes. And He actually addresses the real needs of the society that He lived in. Now, sometimes you, you may have heard Christians saying that this kind of thing isn't supposed to be our concern, right? The, the focus of kingdom people should be evangelism, saving souls for heaven. And social justice is just a, a woke distraction from real kingdom priorities. Is that true? Is that what we see in the life of Jesus? Well, last week we saw how Jesus modeled self-sacrificial love, especially toward His enemies, and that was the way that the kingdom of God was going to come. But what are the ways that this self-sacrificial love plays out in the darkness of this world? For Jesus, it, it meant meeting needs wherever the ways of darkness had taken hold. And so we want to take a closer look at that today. If you're following along in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 25, looking at a couple of the parables that Jesus taught there. And as you find your way there, I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are humbled at your love, at the great love that we have sung about already. And we recognize that today you sit on the throne of heaven, and yet you are a good and faithful uh, and and uh, sympathetic high priest for us. You know the challenges that we face. And so we invite you to teach us how to live. Teach us how to live out your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I pray for strength for my own voice. 
pray, Lord, that you would open all of our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we're looking at two of the parables in this chapter, the parable of the investors and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And these two parables are part of a larger teaching that is sort of prompted by a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. They're walking under the shadow of Herod's magnificent temple, and the disciples are saying, look at this, isn't that just an incredible sign of the kingdom of God? And Jesus is not impressed with the temple at all and says, no, actually, that's not where the kingdom of God is going to be. In fact, that whole thing is coming down within a generation. And, uh, and Jesus proceeds to begin to explain how that is going to happen and what the kingdom of God really, truly looks like. He wants to encourage his disciples to aspire for a better and deeper and more eternal kingdom. And so fast forward to verse 14 in chapter 25. Inspired by Dallas Willard, I want to call this parable training for reigning. Training for reigning. This parable is telling us, as Jesus' apprentices, what to do while we wait for the return of the king. And so Jesus begins at verse 14, again, it will be like. Now, what is it? What will it be like? It refers back to verse 1 in the chapter, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so he's explained one piece of the kingdom, that it, there's an aspect of waiting for it, and now he's continuing. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one, uh, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. Do you notice here that the master gladly shares all of his authority to invest his resources? And he gives each of us resources, our existence, our natural abilities, our spiritual gifts, our education, our material resources, the wisdom and knowledge that we have obtained as we've walked with Jesus in the kingdom. Now, whatever measure that we have is not supposed to be a, a, a status symbol in the church. Rather, these are the king's resources, and he says, go and put them to use. So verse 16, the man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. You notice this isn't just a house-sitting assignment, right? They don't just have to feed the cats and keep the pipes from freezing. There's like real responsibility here. This is a chance to be really useful for the king. And two of the managers do that. But, verse 18, the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. We'll see in a moment why he does that. So two of the servants report back. They're each able to report this doubling of what they'd invested. And each servant receives the same uh, approval from the master. Verse 21 and 23, identical. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And then, however, the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. 
So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. So here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you know I harvest where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. Man, that's tough, right? You see the difference between the, last, or the first two servants and the last? The last servant has formed this picture in his mind of this tough-minded, no-holds-barred boss, right? He's afraid of mistreatment, and so he protects his own interests and then blames his master for the lack of results. The first two servants know the master differently. They're excited because they trust that the master's going to be fair in his reward. What do you think gave them that confidence? We'll come back to that at the end of the message. I think the principle of this parable is pretty straightforward. The king really wants his servants to share in the joy of seeing an investment pay off. And at the same time, he's testing our trustworthiness for bigger assignments, for bigger investments still to come. With everything he's given us, we are training for reigning. We're training for reigning. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Jesus ends with a very tough warning that's kind of hard to swallow if you like meek and mild Jesus, right? Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we'll come back to that. Now, so far, I can kind of get into this, right? I'm, I'm an ambitious guy. I like to set goals. I like to invest things. Great. It kind of tantalizes my ambition to make a difference, to make a mark in the world. But that can turn into something that Jesus didn't mean for it to be. And so I think that's why it's important for us to move on to the, the next parable, which I would call reigning for whose sake. Reigning for whose sake. So now that we're in verse 31, we're, we kind of sit in the office as the master settles accounts. We're about to learn the standards that the king uses to measure results in his kingdom. In other words, he's answering the question, what should be our focus as we invest the resources of the king? So he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. It's a pretty intense picture, right? This grand cosmic vision of, a, of the Son of Man sitting on a throne. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you would know that, that there was this prophecy given in Daniel chapter 7 about a mysterious cosmic king called the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 28 times in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you wonder if there's ever a claim that Jesus is divine, it's a pretty strong claim. Because Daniel speaks of this fully realized human, the Son of Man, who is also divine. And he takes his position as King of the nations. And these are the words that Daniel uses to describe 
that reign, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. And His, that is the Son of Man's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. So Jesus is claiming that the judge at the end of time who sits on the throne as the ultimate human being who is also God is Him. So if you're Jewish and you're thinking, it's about to happen, you're sort of sitting on the edge of your seat, right? What's our assignment going to be? We're His chosen people, right? We're the holy ones. But Jesus has this surprise. He makes it known that the chosen people are not set apart by their ethnicity. It's a certain kind of people. These are people that have proven themselves to be good investors of the king's resources. And Jesus now tells us what that work is. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate one from another as the sheep separates the sheep as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left now if you like goats Jesus doesn't have anything against goats per se he's just he's giving us this picture of a shepherd who knows the difference between two kinds of animals that look very similar from far away but when you look up closer you can tell them apart and this is what he's looking for verse 34 Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did, or whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These unfortunate ones that Jesus draws our attention to appear to be cursed by God. They're the ones who are victims of the bad karma, right? From a worldly perspective, if God or the gods or the universe has given up on these unfortunate souls, then surely they're not worth our time. That's the world's attitude. But Jesus' first sermon opened with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When John the, John the Baptist began to doubt whether Jesus was the king, this was the evidence that Jesus gave that he was. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. This is what the king had on his mind as he walked on the earth. So, when the king settles accounts with his servants and with the nations, he won't be celebrating the ones who protected their privilege. And he won't be looking for people who just fed the cats and kept the pipes from freezing. He's asking, have you been reigning for the sake of the poor? Have you been using my resources that I, that I entrusted to you for the sake of of the people that matter to me most. And it's not just that he cares about the poor. In a way, while the king appears to be distant and, and far away from us, he actually walks among us. Mother Teresa called it his distressing disguise, that he walks among us in the guise of the poor. He identifies so deeply with the victims of this dark world that to care for the poor is to care for the Son of Man. To love the poor is to simultaneously love God and love humanity. Now, before we move on, I, I want to talk about Jesus' language of reward and punishment. Sometimes Christians get a little bit nervous about the language of merit or reward as a condition for entering the kingdom, right? We know that we can't be saved by our works. And yet Jesus is not hesitant to use this language of reward and punishment here and in other places where he teaches. So how do we understand this? Well, first, it is true that reconciliation and salvation and redemption are gracious gifts of God that come to us as we trust in Jesus. Paul writes to the Ephesians, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. But when we trust in Jesus as Lord, we're also plugged back into the grace that energizes us in our calling as partners with God. And so Paul continues, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation and our obedience and our investment in this calling are the results of God's grace at work in our lives. And yet, Scripture does encourage us with the promise of reward. We're told that Jesus' apprentices will reign with Him. He gives us the kingdom prepared, the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the creation of the world. Have you ever thought about what your hope is as a Christian? As Scripture describes it, as you, as you look at this theme of reigning throughout Scripture, you realize that those who faithfully invest the grace of God for the sake of Jesus' kingdom have a very particular hope. That for all eternity, we have ever-expanding creative endeavors with unlimited resources with truly good people, in healthy, sustainable rhythms, alongside of our eternally happy God. 
I'll say that again because there's so much there. Our hope is for all eternity, ever-expanding creative endeavors with unlimited resources, with truly good people, in healthy, sustainable rhythms, alongside our eternally happy God and not a single influence of evil to stand in the way. That is the Christian hope. Come and share in your master's happiness. Well, what about this language of punishment? We struggle with this, don't we? Jesus uses some tough language. The servant who was self-seeking and uninvested in his master's business was cast into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The people who feel no burden to help the needy will be sent into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels into eternal punishment. What is eternal punishment? I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound good. It's not something to look forward to if it's coming your way. And a lot of people justify complacency or, or resistance even toward the kingdom by just imagining that God will wink at our sin or shrug at injustice in His final judgment. I think that's a risky bet given what Scripture tells us. See, all that is good and true, and beautiful, and life-giving comes from the kingdom of God, from the rule of Jesus. There are no exceptions to that truth. It comes from nowhere else. The reverse is also true. If we reject Jesus' rule, and we ground our lives on something other than the kingdom of God, then everything that is good, and true, and beautiful, and life-giving eventually dies like cut flowers. We'll be in the dark, outside of the good, gnashing our teeth. I recognize that there are debates on whether that is this never-ending conscious experience or something else, and we don't have time to kind of get into that, to explore that. I don't have time to go into the arguments for the different positions on what eternity is like for people who reject Christ and His kingdom, but I know this for sure, that God created us and saved us to cultivate life with Him in His kingdom and to choose the alternative is to choose futility and death and sadness beyond imagining. But I find uh, Malcolm Geet's sonnet helpful in just thinking about this. Malcolm Geet is a, a poet and theologian from Oxford, and he's written this poem called Refusal, uh, reflecting on this warning from Jesus in Matthew 25. Jesus, you reveal the Father's heart, and in your love each promise finds its yes. How could I hear you bid me to depart, whose every word is bidding me to bliss? O oh, you who dared descend and harrow hell, who spared no pain if you might find me there, you have not come to curse and wish me ill or heap your condemnation on despair. Any refusal must begin in me. Mine is the voice I hear that says, depart. For I have cursed you in your poverty and closed to you the heaven of my heart. Undo my blind refusal. Help me see 
and welcome you in those you send to me. If darkness and distress is the way that self-interest plays out, isn't it the safer bet to give ourselves fully to the King and His purposes? That's the question that Jesus is posing to us in these passages. Now, why do we need to know this today? Well, first of all, I think there's a way of envisioning Jesus' kingdom that just pushes everything out to His return. You know, the world is going to hell, the whole thing's burning down, just get as many people's souls out of the building as you can before it burns down. And I know that's a, that's a uh, maybe a caricature, but sometimes you hear that. And in that view, issues of mercy and justice are just worldly, woke distractions from that work of evangelism and, 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 or, or maybe from staying clean from the sin of the world, you know. But that's a form of Gnosticism. It's a view that only your personal relationship with Jesus is important to take care of. Gnostic ideas end up giving people permission to pursue worldly ends or to neglect justice since, you know, our, our soul is covered and it's all good. Jesus tells us here that His kingdom is concerned with the material and the emotional needs of people, not just their spiritual needs. He cares about the whole person. Mercy and justice predate wokeism by millennia. We have to realize that's the truth in Scripture. But there's also a way of envisioning the kingdom that has no room for the supernatural or the eternal. Everything comes down to social justice in this life, and people become preoccupied with just social change and political action. And here we know, we learn that, that a kingdom of justice is nothing if it doesn't have a king who is just and good. Without the rule of Jesus, there just is no firm foundation for human dignity and no clear vision for human flourishing. Where justice is overseen by just human leaders, it usually descends into some new form of injustice. We can't have the kingdom without the king. So then, if this is our calling, how do we invest the king's resources? I see three ways that we do this. First of all, this is maybe the most obvious, we meet immediate needs as we see them. When Jesus announced the kingdom of God, he sought out the victims of the kingdom of darkness so that he could relieve their suffering. Sometimes he traveled a long distance just to find one person who he'd heard about who was trapped by evil. And that's why people like Andy, whose story you heard, and, and the team that goes with him, goes into our city of Langley to work with and, and encourage our street friends. It's why we did our Celebrate Single Moms Day last weekend. It's why many of you rally together to bring meals to people or to drive people to appointments or to pray, someone, pray for someone who you know from your kid's school or these kinds of things to meet needs for them. It's why our family and maybe many of your families are sponsoring children through Compassion or Kawasha and why many of you have adopted or, or you know, are, are fostering children. Meeting these immediate needs, relieving people's suffering is the king's work, and it becomes the sign of his kingdom in our community. 
The second thing is that we, as the church, are called to operate as a sharing community, right? We have these banners that we, we share our lives together. And if you're part of the community, like the New Testament church, no one has need. Our needs are taken care of because we bring our resources together. It's a sign of the kingdom to come when all needs are addressed, where generosity where generous love is the way of the kingdom. And so if you're part of a life group, this has probably happened for you, where a need that would have been overwhelming is less so because people are in your life. Living well is another place where a community comes together around people struggling with mental health and supports them so it's not overwhelming to them. Our church has an acts fund that sets aside financial resources to help people when they come in with extra burdens financially. We always want to keep thinking of new ways to bring the, the embrace of the community around people, not just a kind of a one-time help, but where people just discover, I'm, I'm going to be taken care of. But the last thing is that we're called to build a just and generous society. In His sovereign wisdom, our King has placed every one of us strategically, in a place of responsibility in our community. Whether you're in law enforcement or healthcare, education, smaller corporate business, the trades, engineering, civil service, human resources, technology, politics, the nonprofit sector, or you're focused on parenting, the king calls you to steward those resources that are in your hands so that the most vulnerable are brought out of suffering. As taxpayers, Consumers, commuters, voters, citizens, our influence and our actions play a role in God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. These parables about the kingdom of God are why racial justice and reconciliation with indigenous peoples, climate change, social security, foster care, the lives of the unborn and the the elderly and the sick should be important to kingdom people. These parables should inspire us to run businesses with integrity and treat employees fairly, to use the courts for justice rather than than to protect privilege. It might inspire Christians to start new organizations, nonprofits, businesses, schools that seek to make a difference. Our church has a partnership with Wellspring, which is an organization founded by people who took their privilege and their education, and they started this organization to build into the next generation of teachers so that Rwanda's future would not have violence the way its past had. Some of you have seen me playing uh, on the worship team, and I play this guitar with a little uh, Africa kind of icon on the guitar. And this guitar was made by a group of luthiers, uh, guitar makers, in Uganda. And they're there because a man here in Canada, his heart broke for the people of Uganda where his church had a partnership. And he, the only thing he knew how to do was build guitars. And so he began this organization that, or this, this business that taught these men and women in Uganda to make guitars. And those guitars are sold to us. They're beautiful guitars. He, he offered what he had to contribute to a little bit more justice and generosity in society. Of course, we could go on with so many other stories. In spite of the fact that some people succeed under the domain of darkness, it's not good for our world. 
But the kingdom of God brings what is good and true and beautiful to our world. And we shouldn't be ashamed about promoting the ends that Jesus describes here. Of course, we learned last week that that always has to be done with sacrificial love, never with violence, never with aggression, always with this patient persistence, sometimes over generations, in all the spheres, sometimes explicitly about Jesus and sometimes quietly. But what we learned today is that the king will be watching. The king is watching to see how we use the resources we've been given. And he wants to see just societies in place because Christians have lived faithfully with his resources. Well, it's a high calling. It's a challenge. And so I think we need to end by remembering that Jesus paved the way for this way of life. See, we were hungry and parched for the righteousness of God to come on earth. And Jesus told us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He promised us the everlasting life of God, the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me, he said, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus' presence as bread and living water strengthens us to be the same for others. We were cast out, alienated from God and one another, and Jesus said, my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. The assurance that God's home has room for us can make us open our hearts to make room for others. We were naked, bruised, and abandoned. Paul writes, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This knowledge that our identity and our status is secure in Christ allows us to set all of our status in this world aside to help the marginalized. And we were imprisoned in chains of our own making, chains of addiction, bitterness, and fear. And the letter to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We have been freed to give our lives in service to others. You see, at every point of our need, Jesus did not sit back complacent about it. And he didn't just kind of give us a little token handout. Jesus gave up his entire self, even to his death on a cross, so that everything could be provided to us. And Jesus' resurrection was the Father's way of saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful to a few things. Now take charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And that's why I think those first two servants could count on a good reward from their good king. They'd seen their master give himself sacrificially to be God's instrument of our peace. 
They knew he would treat them with justice and fairness. And we can count on the same thing. When we trust in the death and the resurrection that proved God's goodness, the Bible says that we are in Christ and the same words that he heard his father speak are spoken to us. And in the assurance of that benediction, that good word, our king calls us to share in his work. We've been restored as his partners. We are training for reigning over his world for his glory and the common good. So as we close, I want to just ask you, have you trusted in the goodness of your king? Do you know him today to be the one who has given you his life and broken your chains and given you a home? You can know that today. You can trust Him. You can open your life to Jesus. And all these things will be true for you. And you'll not only be saved and forgiven, but you'll be invited into this incredible calling, this incredible vocation to work alongside the King. Maybe today you've just been prompted in your spirit that God wants you to to step out a little bit more with your investment. Maybe there's something that you can do with the resources of your business or extra money that you've set aside or maybe God has been placing on your heart to be involved in adoption or fostering and you just, you're wondering if God is sort of saying, okay, let's go. There's a nudge there. Or maybe there's other things that God might be prompting in your spirit. Conviction that you've been living Maybe more for your own self-interest. You've been operating out of fear instead of out of trust. If any of those things are true of you this morning, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we've heard your words today, and they are, on the one hand, very strong and, and hard words to hear, and on the other, so assuring to know that we have a king whose heart is full of mercy and justice. And so, Lord, where we are at today, we just want to say, your kingdom come in our lives and your will be done. We lay down our own self-interest. We invite you to be king. We lay, lay down all those resources that we've been holding for ourselves and we say, Show us how to use them for your purposes, Lord. We pray that because we've heard this word today, we would walk in greater freedom, greater strength, greater assurance, and because of that, greater generosity, greater love, greater mercy. Do your work in us, Lord, we pray. Amen.